So now hear the word of God from Isaiah 19. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving hand of the Lord of hosts, which he is going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, which he is purposing against them. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Thus, the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Thanks, Forrest. Good morning. In the book of Genesis, at the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve and places them in the perfect place, the Garden of Eden. They had everything they wanted. There was just one rule, don't eat of the one tree. But Satan came and tempted them. And listen to what he says to the woman. You will surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her. You see, Satan's message to her was this. You think you got it good? You could have it better. God's holding out on you. He just doesn't want you to know good and evil. And, of course, they were convinced that the grass was greener on the other side. (laughs) Satan stirred up discontentment in them. And the world has been a mess ever since. But Satan's methods have not changed, have they? He's still stirring up discontentment everywhere he goes. Now there's a new dictionary term for this. It's called FOMO, fear of missing out. It's defined as an anxiety that there is something out there that I should be getting in on, but I'm missing it. Social media drives this anxiety, right? I mean, you, you get on and, and you see, oh, I, I can't miss anything because I might miss out. And you see all the things that people are doing or that they're buying or they're making or they're posting or they're pinning 
And you feel the fear of missing out because you don't have that or you might miss something that's going on. And this fear, actually, from their studies, they see how this fear has become addictive to our brains. It drives the adrenaline in our system and causes a greater and greater discontentment with the life that God has given us. God rescued the people Israel from slavery in Egypt. The people of God were defined, actually, by that rescue. They were a redeemed people. They had been in slavery. It had been awful in Egypt. They had to gather their own straw. They were dying off. It was difficult. It was The Egyptians were against them. It was horrible slavery. But God redeemed them and brought them out. And He was taking them to the promised land. But when life got hard in the wilderness, they forgot what God had redeemed them from. And several times as they're in the wilderness and life's a little hard, but God is leading them and providing for them, they say, ah, we don't like this Moses guy. Life was so much better back in Egypt. You see, they forgot. But Satan was stirring up this discontentment with life with God and They began to get more and more frustrated with everything about it. And they were tired of the manna that God was feeding them. And they said, oh, food was so much better back in Egypt. It was a lie, but that's what their mind said. That's what Satan was telling them. They should be discontent with what they have and go back to Egypt. They began to complain about the manna that they were given to eat. Every day, manna, pancakes... Manna waffles, manicotti, <laughs> banana bread. You see, throughout the scriptures, all the way through, Egypt represents the world for the people of God. Something that God has rescued us from. He's freed us from slavery to the world and all the things that the world ties us down to into the freedom of a worship of the true God. And yet, The world keeps throwing at us this sense of, ah, you're missing out. FOMO, you want to go back to Egypt. The world keeps calling us to go back. In Isaiah's day, in the passage we're in today, it was around 720 B.C., Judah was afraid, right? They're afraid because the Assyrians are coming. And so they make an alliance with Egypt. They go back to Egypt. They're enamored with Egypt and their power and their strength and the things that Egypt offers them. So God gives a message, an oracle against Egypt in our passage today to encourage the people of God to not go back to Egypt, to not give in to discontentment, to not let the world keep pulling them back. And it's the same message you and I need to hear today, isn't it? Because I think we all at times struggle with the sense of, you know, following God's kind of hard and and unbelievers seem to be doing so well and they seem happier than a lot of Christians. And and gosh, would it be better to go back to Egypt? Pray with me. Lord, as we look at this passage together, I pray, Lord, that you would help us understand more fully the false promises that the world keeps throwing at us and how they do not lead to life, though they claim that they will. And may we, Lord, see more clearly how life is in you and in you alone. Open our eyes through the power of your Spirit 
Lord Jesus, to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll see in this passage that our real choice is go back to slavery or really rely on our Savior. In this passage, God, first of all, exposes the foolishness of the world and the promises of the world that so often fool us. And then shows us God's heart for the world so that we can actually be the people who take on God's heart for the world. The difficulty when we're thinking about how we as believers relate to the world is we tend to fall into one of two camps. We either fall into isolation from the world. You know, the world's bad. So let's pull out and let's make sure everything we do is surrounded by Christians and and let's hide from the world until Christ comes back. That's isolation or assimilation where we take on the values of the world and and we just kind of try to live in two, with our feet in two worlds, this world and the kingdom of God. And that ends up leaving us double-minded. It cannot work. And so the real calling of the people of God, of every one of us in this room is, can we learn to be people who are secure in our relationship with Christ so that we can engage the world with the love of Christ. That's our challenge. So let's look first at three promises, false promises that the world gives us. The first is you can have spiritual power without the cross. You can have spiritual power without the cross. Now, Egypt was a pantheistic nation. One of the most pantheistic nations that have ever existed, pantheism, all gods. In other words, there were many, many gods that they worshipped. Let me just give you some examples. This is just a very few because they had so many, I couldn't even begin to name them all. But one is Anhur, was an Egyptian sky god and god of war. Anubis was the god of the dead, of embalming, of funerals, and mourning ceremonies. He was a jackal-headed god. Anyaket was the goddess of the river Nile. Apophis was the god of snakes and war and chaos. Babi was the god of baboons. Bast was the cat goddess, known to protect pregnant women and children. Bess was the dwarf god. He protected newborn babies. Geb was the god of the earth. Gengenware, I don't know where they came up with the names, but uh, Gengenware was the goose god. Hapi was the god of the Nile. Hathor was the goddess of love. And Heket, a very important god, was the goddess of frogs. <laughs> I could go on and on. They had a god or goddess for everything. So the way they lived their lives, see, was they said, you know, I really want to get the frogs out of my house. (laughs) So I've got to figure out what this particular god wants and burn incense or do a sacrifice or whatever for that particular problem. And they had a god for every problem. So you had to figure out what each god wanted. But the whole point of what they were doing was trying to somehow find life in these things and control their lives. You see, if you wanted your life to go well, you perform certain rites to certain gods to get that god on your side. 
if it didn't work, then you must have done it wrong. And so you've got to figure out something else. But it's all about manipulating your world to control your world so your life can go well. Now, Judah kind of bought into this, right? I mean, they they had been in Egypt. They'd seen all these gods worshipped. And so it was easy for them to kind of fall into idolatry. They'd say, well, we we like Yahweh. He's a pretty good God. But, you know, when we follow Yahweh, God doesn't always make life go well, at least the way I want it to go. So maybe if I want to have a healthy child, I should also, along with worshiping Yahweh, burn a little incense to this Egyptian god or that god. And so it was a way to kind of control life and try to make life go well. But again, they had a foot in two different worlds and it was tearing them apart. But religion is always this way. It's always a way to try to manipulate life to get what you want. Now, what about us today? How how do we compare? How does this fit into our culture? Well, our culture is not so much pantheistic as pluralistic. Pluralistic. In other words, we don't necessarily believe in many, many, many gods. But what we say is there are many paths to God. There's all kinds of ways out there that you can get to God, kind of spiritualities. And so our world says you can have spiritual power without Jesus, without the cross. There are a lot of ways to experience what religion promises, which is peace and control over your life. So more and more in our world today, we're seeing this sense of spirituality is good. It's a good thing as long as it's private. It's You keep it to yourself and you don't make any exclusivist claims to say that Well, my way is the only way. But, you know, Christianity, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father. But through me, we have an exclusivist claim because Jesus came and died. And so but the world says, oh, that's not good. Religion's good as long as it's private and it gives you a sense of personal peace and control in your life. An example of what kind of our world is like is Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, talks about how he posted a photo of himself on Facebook praying at Wild Goose Pagoda in Xi'an, China. He said that he offered a prayer for his wife Priscilla, who's a Buddhist. And he described Buddhism as an amazing religion and philosophy and said he wants to learn more about it. At one point, he was questioned by a commentator who said, but aren't you an atheist? Zuckerberg said, well, no, I was raised Jewish, and then I went through a period where I questioned things, but now I believe religion is very important. He was raised Jewish, but he's worshipped at a Buddhist temple. He believes spirituality is good, but I I hope he's on a journey toward Christ. But he's just an example of the world around us, right? Spirituality is a good thing. You can have spiritual power without the cross. You just have to find a way to plug in to get what you want. But what does God say about that? (laughs) Well, he challenges the whole Egyptian pantheism and our pluralism in chapter 19, as it begins this way, the oracle concerning Egypt. Chapter 19, verse 1. 
Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. In other words, he's the only true God. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians and they will fight each other, each his brother and his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them and I will confound their strategy so they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord of hosts. What Yahweh says, what the true God says is, you know what? If you try to find spirituality without Christ, spirituality without the cross, the result in your life will not be peace and more control. In fact, it'll be the exact opposite. You'll have more conflict in your relationships with others. And isn't that true? Religion throughout our world, throughout history, has always led to more and more conflict. When people live religious lives rather than lives submitted to the true peacemaker, Christ, it just leads to more conflict in the world. And he said it ultimately doesn't lead to more control. It leads to slavery to a cruel master who ultimately is Satan himself. It just enslaves you. It's interesting, again, reading the Quran and seeing how it, like every other religion, really, apart from true Christianity, just leads you to a deeper slavery to self, uh, more pressure to perform, more pressure that you have to try to do more and more to hopefully your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds and you may get into paradise, but you never know. Praise God, we have one who died for us, who gave us life as a gift that we put our faith in and trust in, that frees us rather than enslaves us. So the first lie that he contradicts about that was in Egypt and is in our culture today is that you can have spiritual power without the cross. The second lie, which is a promise of the world, but it's a lie of the world, is that you can gain satisfaction through things through things. Now, this is a tough one for us because we are so immersed in a materialistic world that we can't even see what we're swimming in every day. But let's explore this a little. Egypt had a very powerful economy. It was all based on the Nile River. Every year, the Nile would flood and it would deposit silt far away from the banks of the river, and then it would retract again. And all of that territory was incredibly productive. They had rich agriculture and fishing and flax and other crops. And Egypt was very proud and arrogant and dependent on their wealth. The world around us that we live in is a world that is constantly telling us, you know, if you really want to be satisfied in life, you just need a little more. <laughs> a little more of this or that. The advertisements say, yeah, you should be dissatisfied with what you have. You should be discontent and desire more. The, the whole development of our industrial system. First, you know, we developed all this industry so that we could provide for people's needs. But as we began to produce more and more goods, 
People didn't need it anymore. So the only answer was to create in people's hearts a sense of discontentment so that they would want what they didn't need. And that's what advertising does. It produces in us this sense of, I need something else. Yeah, if I only had that car or that, drank that beer or did this or that, you know, then then I would finally be satisfied. And so the world around us is filled with this. This is one of the major tools of the world to create discontentment in us and make us think that what will satisfy our hearts is more things, more money. And ultimately, though, the plan of the world is to enslave us through that. Now, you may think you haven't bought into that, but let me just ask this question. How would you define the good life? How would you define the good life for you and for your kids? I would guess it includes having certain things, you know, nice house, couple of cars, maybe three or four cars, motorcycle. I mean, whatever it is you might say is the good life. It's very materialistically oriented because that's the world in which we live in. The lie is you can have true satisfaction through things. That's the world we live in. I've been struck, and many of you have been on short-term missions. And invariably, if you go to a poor country, one of the first things that people always say when they come back, I've heard it over and over and over again, is, I can't believe those people are so happy. They don't have anything. Now, just think of the worldview that would say that. But that's the worldview we all live in. Happiness comes from having things. And believe me, what it does to us is it enslaves us to those things. Jesus made very clear dependence on things for your satisfaction is enslaving. You cannot serve God and mammon, money, Things, Jesus said very clearly, but money will enslave you. Things will enslave you. That's what they do. They will control you and they will weaken or destroy your relationship with God. Paul made it very clear in First Timothy 6 where he said there that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And many have wandered astray and lost their faith because of it. Because of this love for more that the world keeps telling us, you need more to be happy. You should be discontent with what God's given you. Notice what God says to Egypt about that, starting in verse 5. The waters from the sea will dry up and the river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, and all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. The fishermen will lament. Those who cast the line in the Nile will mourn. Those who spread nets on the waters will pine away. Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax and the weavers of dry cloth will be utterly dejected. And the pillars of Egypt will be crushed. All the hired laborers will be grieved in soul. Notice what happens when you think things are what will satisfy your heart. Eventually what happens is your soul dries up and you become more and more grieved 
of soul. You begin to mourn because things satisfy for a bit, right? But then it's never satisfying, so you need a little more and a little more and a little more, and and it never quite is enough. And you end up with a dry soul and a grieving heart, he says. Basically, what he's saying is things can never satisfy. No matter how many things you stuff into your soul, it remains empty and dry. Cannot give you what you want. So that's a lie of the world that he says, watch out for. The satisfaction, true satisfaction can come through things. The third promise that the world makes to us that is a lie is that human reasoning is the answer. Human reasoning is the answer. Egypt was very proud of their intellectual pursuits. They had advanced mathematics. They had a wonderful language system. They developed really advanced technologies for the day, especially in weapons of war, chariots, etc. They had a lot of confidence in their minds, in their reasoning, that they could figure life out. And isn't this one of the main promises of the world that we see around us, that we live in today, is that human reasoning is the answer to whatever you are dealing with. Human reasoning is the answer to whatever you are dealing with. It's always been part of our human culture. The world wants us to trust ourselves and our minds instead of God, instead of filtering everything through the revelation of God and what God says. But I think in our culture, it's really been strengthened because we are children of the Enlightenment. Remember the Enlightenment of the 18th century basically said this. If we apply our minds, we can figure out the world. And we do not need God for that. Human reasoning is the only source, the Enlightenment said, of authority and legitimacy. It's the only source of authority over the Bible and over the church and anything else. And you and I are products of that enlightenment. The modern world that we, many of us were raised in, had this attitude that we can do it. We can figure out the world. The true principles are out there. And we just need to apply ourselves together as people and apply our reasoning and we can figure it out. Well, now we live in an increasingly postmodern world. And people in the postmodern world say, well, we don't rely on reasoning like that. Well, you know what? I think you do. (laughs) Because the postmodern world says this, not we can figure it out and find truth. That's the modern world. Postmodern world says what I think, the way I view the world, what I determine is truth and reality. But it's still depending on my own reasoning. It's saying, you figure out your own truth, doesn't matter, you, you, whatever you want, but I'm going to figure out my own truth for myself. And if I can just get more knowledge through books, through experts, through the Internet, through Wikipedia, through whatever it might be, I can control my life and make it work out. And either way, the world wins because it promises that human reasoning is the answer. How does God respond to that? Again, chapter 19, starting in verse 11. The princes of Zoan are mere fools. The advice of Pharaoh's wisest advisors has become stupid. Yeah, that's a word in the Bible. I never let my kids say it. But that's what the Bible says. 
How can you men say to Pharaoh, I'm the son of the wise, the son of the ancient kings. Well, then, where are your wise men? Please let them tell you and let them understand what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have acted foolishly. The princes of Memphis are deluded. Those who are the cornerstone of her tribes have led Egypt astray. The Lord has mixed within her a spirit of distortion. They've led Egypt astray in all that it does as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. (laughs) God's response to this attitude that, hey, we can figure it all out. Now, God has given us amazing minds. He has. But they only work well when we filter everything through the revelation of God. When we pull ourselves away from God's revelation, he says, here's what happens. You become stupid which means you can't see reality clearly. He says you become foolish. You don't make wise choices because you're not seeing reality well and you're morally tainted. You become deceived, he says, distorted. You've been lied to so that you begin to believe lies. And you become confused. He says you can't see clearly. You're stumbling in the dark like a drunk man. That's what he says. That's what happens when we rely on our own human reasoning instead of submitting to God as the authority and then run using our minds to apply what God has said. In other words, man's reasoning, while amazing, is limited. And without submitting to God's revelation, we're stumbling in the dark. It's like we're looking at this huge, complex machine, and we're trying to figure it out from outside, and we make assumptions and conclusions, but we really don't know what's going on. The only one who does is the designer of the machine. You and I are very complex machines, and if you want to know how to understand humanity and understand who we are and how to find satisfaction and peace and find life, only God can tell us because we can't See it. We've got to submit to the designer. Brothers and sisters, the world has lied to us. Human reasoning is not the answer to everything, nor is spirituality without Jesus, nor is trying to find satisfaction through things. So, what is the answer? Well, he gives the clear answer that life is found in Jesus. He describes the Messiah as the one that Egypt needs to turn to, the world itself, and, of course, Israel needs to turn to as well. Starting in verse 18 of chapter 19, In that day, five cities of the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan, swearing allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there'll be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, where all these gods are worshipped. There'll be an altar to the Lord in Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Isn't that a beautiful picture of Messiah, of Jesus? Thus the Lord will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering, and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing, so they will return to the Lord, and he will respond to them and will heal them. 
You see, God didn't send Jesus into the world to judge the world, but to rather bring life and healing as nations turn to him, all nations, including people in the world, Egypt. God offers an alternative to the false promises in the world. He says, you want to know where life comes from? It isn't from those other things. Don't be fooled, Judah. Don't be fooled, Israel. And don't be fooled, world around. I'm sending a savior, one who will free you from slavery. Jesus died to free us from the foolishness of the world and thinking we can somehow ourselves make life work and get what we want out of life. All that does is leave us empty and enslaved and broken and dry. He says, I'll send you a champion, a defender. This is a word like an advocate in a court of law. Jesus deals with our guilt and defends us before the evil accuser. He's our intercessor before the throne of God, and he delivers us from the world, from Satan, from ourselves. So if he's delivered us, why in the world do we keep wanting to go back to Egypt? God's purpose is given in verse 23 and following. I love this conclusion. In that day, there'll be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. You see, God's purpose is that he would call people out of Egypt, out of Assyria, these two nations that Israel's afraid of, and include Israel, and these nations would come together and worship the Lord together and be a blessing for the rest of the world. Isn't that a marvelous picture? Well, what happened in history? Very interesting. When the gospel began to go forth, you know, three groups of people who were most responsive to the gospel, Assyrians, the Jews, and the Egyptians. Many Assyrians were converted. As we know, many of the early church were Jews, were Jewish. As Peter preached on Pentecost and thousands turned to Christ. Well, according to tradition, Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark in A.D. 42, went to Egypt and shared the gospel. And there was a massive turning to the Lord. Many came to Christ and actually Egypt and Alexandria and that whole area became a foundational site of early Christianity where they preserved the Gospels that were written and and they were solid in their faith. Church councils were there, etc., etc. And you know what? Today they call them Coptic Christians. That just means Egyptian, though Egypt is primarily a Muslim country. There are over 10 million Coptic Christians and probably more, many who truly, truly love Jesus there. You see, the challenge for us is that will we trust Jesus or will we keep wanting to go back to Egypt? Will we be the blessing who shares the good news or will we keep trying to find life our own way? You see, that's the question. Do we want to go back to slavery Or go deeper with Christ to find life as he's offered it to us. That's our choice. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this word that is powerful.
powerful and clear and really applies to us today, even though it's an ancient word. Lord, it reveals our hearts. And as we prepare now to take communion together as the people of God gathered here today, we confess freely before you that we have listened too much to the siren calls of the world around us, trying to pull us away as Satan tries to convince us that we're missing out somehow. We confess, Lord, our hearts have been divided. But as we come now before the table and receive from you the bread and the cup, Lord, cleanse us of our divided hearts. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, may we be the people that you've called us to be, that we might be a blessing, learning to engage with the world and bring the love of Christ rather than being part of the world in a way that pulls us away from you. So, Lord, we gratefully receive this bread in this cup together, rejoicing in your redemption of us, calling us out of the world and setting us free. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.